we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, so, ego, my stomach is going crazy. It looks like our lunch is delayed. It'll probably show up in the middle. And when it does, um, and maybe we'll keep going, but people can sort of quietly trickle back and grab sandwiches. Um, so, welcome to our January um, AIDS seminar. And so today we are uh, delighted to have Dr. Escudero, Dan Escudero here, um, present to our group. Um, the title is not up here. What's your official title for the presentation? Um, I think it's something along the lines of Plans for Getting to Zero HIV in Miami. Plans for Getting to Zero HIV in Miami. Yeah. So Dr. Escudero uh, <coughs> got his PhD at Brown and then moved from there to Harvard to the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Uh, currently, he uh, is a research associate and instructor uh, in the Department of Epi at Harvard and is actually on our campus, um, just down the way, Dartmouth, as a visiting scholar in the Department of Mathematics. Um, Dan has done lots of work over uh, his not that many years at this time, uh, looking at modeling around aspects of HIV, HIV transmission, and then most recently at aspects of our possible interventions for uh, elimination of HIV, so, uh, and uh, actively working on a project in Miami that is going to be a focus of this discussion about HIV elimination, as well as um, uh, doing work around modeling of the efficacy of PrEP and other interventions related to it. He's also touched on hepatitis C along the way in his um, career. Uh, pertinent to us, um, just to mention our, our group, um, many of you will have heard, is from gearing up to um, work with the state of the, the health department in the state of New Hampshire on a hepatitis C eradication uh, by 2030 campaign. So, project that we will be jump starting in the near future. Uh, and we'll be hearing a lot more about. So let me hand off to Dan. Oh, actually, I need to do my due diligence stuff here, too. So um, just really quickly, for everyone, uh, if you're new to the AIDS seminar and haven't done the online registration thing, please do so. Uh, uh, and uh, follow-up evaluations are really important. So you'll get a reminder uh, to fill out an evaluation uh, for the seminar. When you get that, please do so. Uh, uh, there were, there are no conflicts of interests today, and the speaker has nothing to disclose. We didn't have, we have no commercial support for the program. And the activity code for people who need CME is listed there, WTBP. Uh, presentation as mentioned for uh, nursing CNE people the nurses need to be here for 80% of the presentation to claim support to claim credit for uh, being present anything I miss Val no she's probably trying to get our food okay Dan thank you <clears throat> okay thanks everyone for inviting me today It'll be really nice to talk about uh, some of these projects we have going in Miami. Um, okay. So like, uh, like we just mentioned, we'll be talking about plans for getting to zero new HIV infections in Miami. Um, so in order to 
prevent some overlap with, um, uh, I presented some similar work on the modeling in a ID rounds a uh, couple months ago, I guess. So I'll try to breeze through some of that a little bit quicker, but also in the spirit of CME, any questions, you know, please feel free to stop. This is meant to be a discussion, uh, very colloquial, so feel free to stop me at any point, especially through some of the methods as we go through a little bit of the modeling. I'm perfectly happy to do that. And actually, this is the first time I'll be talking about some of the routine HIV testing that will take um, about a third of this presentation. Um, we just submitted this grant last Monday, so it's very new. It's the first time I'm talking about it publicly, so also very happy to um, answer any questions about that. We'll probably just go through that together. Uh, so like I said, at first we'll be talking about the HIV epidemic in Miami, which I hope I'll be able to convince you is a, is a real pressing concern. I'll talk about the uh, Miami-Dade County's Getting Zero Task Force, uh, the HIV screening uh, project that we have in the emergency department, the model we have in order to estimate the ability for us to get to zero uh, new HIV infections in Miami, and then the limitations of both these works. So at first, we'll take a look at some of the, uh, the epi around uh, HIV surveillance in Miami. If you look at these orange bars, we have HIV prevalence per 100,000, and then the, um, the blue squares, uh, they look like diamonds, are new HIV diagnoses. So on first inspection, you can obviously see these outpaced the U.S. and all other metropolitan statistical areas by quite a bit. And the, um, in the MSA over here, on the second from the left, you have Miami, uh, Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach. So this includes Miami-Dade and Broward County, for instance, which we're not going to talk about today, but Broward County has very similar numbers, unfortunately, with respect to prevalence and incidence of HIV. So it's not doing very well either. It's just north of Miami, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, so we're not going to mention that today, but it is a similar situation there. And of course, we have Miami uh, on the left, which is, we'll just say synonymous with Miami-Dade County for our purposes here. And then you have the much lower uh, peaks for all of the states and for the U.S. So unfortunately, Miami, for the last 20 years, and I believe it's all but one year, has had the highest incidence of HIV in the U.S. Most people don't realize that. It doesn't receive the same attention as some other cities uh, with traditionally large uh, epidemics have had. Baltimore, San Francisco, New York, LA. These are probably settings which many of you may be familiar with, maybe studied there. Um, unfortunately, Miami does not receive that same level of attention, at least from my perspective. So it is nonetheless important that we sort of bring that message forward that it has had this unfortunate situation for quite a while, um, being that first ranked city. We look over here in the last 20 years uh, in Miami-Dade County, you have 1998 on the left and then most recently 2017 on the right. We're moving in the right direction. This is fantastic. Everyone can be very happy looking at this graph. Unfortunately, you see that after the huge gains in reduction that we have um, two decades ago, uh, peaking around 2006, we see it's really plateaued. And so for the HIV epidemiologists in the room, you'll notice that this sort of corresponds with secular trends in the U.S. during this time. If you look at cities, you know, New York, uh, Houston, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco especially, also very stark reductions during that same period of time. So much of this hopefully is due to the efforts that uh, local officials are having in Miami, but also a lot of this is, is really national trends. And so we do see this unfortunate plateau here where we had some great progress and then around this 2006-2009 period, it just sort of plateaued, which is unfortunate. And of course, we do have this tiny little blip at the, at the end, which is fantastic if that continues in the downward trend, but it's of course just a couple of years of data. And I also like to point out that uh, the epidemic itself 
is very diverse. So you have um, Hispanics comprising about 59% of new HIV diagnoses in 2017. And as you can see, the share has actually uh, gone up quite a bit over the last 10 years. So although Miami-Dade is doing quite well with uh, non-Hispanics in some respects, bringing that incidence down, or diagnoses rather, uh, you do see that for Hispanics, unfortunately, it's kind of crossing there, which, um, you know, there are probably a few reasons we can, we can go into if we had time, uh, but this is nonetheless not, not a trend we like to see, especially within a population that also has other disparities with respect to um, HIV prevention, access to PrEP, um, access to HIV testing, early diagnoses. Unfortunately, uh, Hispanics tend to lag in all of these respects in Miami-Dade and throughout the country. So we'll see here some constituent pies of the modalities of uh, HIV transmission and acquisition in Miami-Dade County. This is taken from AIDSView, which if any of you um, are interested in HIV epi on a national scale, AIDSView is really your one-stop shop to get local and national uh, data on this. And it's run by Patrick Sullivan over at Emory, a plug for my alma mater. And um, it's really got some fantastic data if you ever need sort of a quick look. So this is taken from there, and we see here that male-to-male uh, -male sexual transmission takes up the bulk of transmission in Miami-Dade as it does nationally. And for here, it's about almost 80%. And we see some sort of curiously uh, low numbers for injection drug use. We talked about this at the, um, at the ID uh, rounds a couple months ago when I presented some of this. And uh, this may not be necessarily the most reliable data. Um, I don't want to impute any of the collection uh, that's going on in Miami, but as some of you know, when you impute some of these modalities, it's not always um, the most reliable process. Sometimes you're making some assumptions that uh, may be obscuring some of the transmission that's, that's happening in the IDU community. And this has actually gotten a lot of press. Some of you may have read a couple years ago in Miami, there was a suspected outbreak among people who inject drugs particularly in the Overtown District of Miami. That has since, um, to my knowledge, been disputed. So these cases were not uh, incident cases. They were not linked phylogenetically. Um, they did not occur recently. So that may be uh, a good spot of, uh, of news, I guess, for Miami recently, that this epidemic was, in fact, likely not recent. Um, but nonetheless, we do have to uh, focus on the MSM community uh, among males, and then among females, it's primarily driven by heterosexual contact. This is not very surprising. So here we have a nice uh, geographic view of the epidemic. So we have here uh, HIV prevalence uh, at the zip code level, and as you can see here, um, I know I keep favoring the left side for that. I'll go over there in a second. Um, we have downtown Miami here, we have Miami Beach. Um, this is certainly the center of most of the new diagnoses and the epidemic, but we do see it's not homogenous, so we don't have a monotonic decrease as you leave downtown. You, you see here in this rural district, uh, you have a huge Hispanic population and quite a large prevalence of HIV, unfortunately, there as well. And so we'll actually take another look at this same map when we talk about some of our uh, HIV screening programs uh, but this, I think, just gives a nice view of sort of how the ep epidemic overlays the city itself. And over here, we have um, North towards Broward County, which, again, we don't have time to talk about, but you'll sort of see a similar situation as you go towards Fort Lauderdale. Oh, the HIV care continuum. Uh, we don't really need to malinger here too long. Most of you are probably familiar with this. 
but um, we do have here the number of people diagnosed with HIV, about 27,000. This is a couple years ago. And then we have viral suppression at about 15,000. So you see, you know, it's, it's not um, the most impressive numbers for viral suppression, but it's also not that far off of national trends. So Miami's doing maybe a bit on par in terms of viral suppression. I will say, though, that this bar that's missing on the left, the uh, total people infected with HIV, we're probably, um, obviously it's not included here because we don't have a great estimate for it. And I will say that the current estimates that we have, about 14% or so undiagnosed infection is suspected in Miami-Dade. Um, I, I did, this is based off of NHBS surveys. Show of hands, is, how many people are familiar with NHBS? Uh, so these are basically, um, these are surveys done, uh, in, I think it's 22 or so different cities in the U.S., and they're done within pockets of high-risk populations, respondent-driven sampling, snowball sampling. So they get a couple hundred um, people in each of these cycles. And all I'll say is that their best estimates in Miami for the undiagnosed population is based off of these fairly small samples and these surveys within specific high-risk populations. So when we say 14% undiagnosed, they take that with a pretty big grain of salt. And so I like to mention this and spend a bit of time on it because... It's a huge issue that we don't have a good estimate for the undiagnosed population. And that really is going to be the first step, the entree into the care continuum. So we'll talk briefly about the Getting to Zero campaign, uh, which was really promulgated by this task force that was selected a few years ago. And they put out a final report after convening four committees. There's assistance and policy, social and support services, care and treatment, and then prevention research. They really did a nice grab bag of, uh, of committees here where they didn't ignore some of the underlying issues that need to be addressed if you're going to get to zero new infections. So it's not just about your biomedical treatments, not just getting everyone on PrEP and get everyone, getting everyone treated immediately. It's also providing social and support services that really address uh, some of the downstream or rather the, um, the upstream uh, causes for some of these vulnerabilities. So I give them a lot of, um, a lot of credit for that. Uh, this isn't too unlike a lot of other Getting to Zero committees. Uh, there are some which have had some really nice success in, in New York State, in Massachusetts, in San Francisco. So some campaigns have been doing quite well. And this is you know, more or less the same uh, in terms of their objectives, uh, coming up with recommendations that we can get to uh, the fewest new infections possible. Their recommendations included, uh, I think it was 16 or so, oh yeah, 16, good guess, um, uh, 16 or so recommendations. Some of these are quite broad, and they say something like um, improving uh, sexual education within the public health school system, um, in increasing access to affordable housing for those who have vulnerable housing situations. Uh, and then we also have some of the uh, tried and true interventions, uh, biomedical and otherwise for HIV prevention, that includes post-exposure prophylaxis, which has been around for more than 30 years now in terms of its you know, <coughs> efficacious use, pre-exposure prophylaxis, PrEP, um, which is you know, a term that you'll hear quite a bit if you're in high incidence settings. This was first group efficacious, I want to say, uh, through large RCTs of about 2010, I think maybe was um, Grant's first publication of um, IPREX, which was the first large RCT showing efficacy for pre-exposure prophylaxis. So we're talking about 10 years now, and we still have sort of yet to see the, um, 
the huge expansion of PrEP into uh, populations that need it. Uh, I will say that the CDC just published a paper about a month ago that estimated, I think it was about 20% of those with um, noted eligibility uh, for PrEP were enrolled on PrEP in the US. I also take this with a bit of grain of salt. Their, um, their methodology is, is certainly rigorous, but it's really tough to identify who the best populations are and who the best individuals are for PrEP enrollment. So when you say about one in five, you know, maybe that's a good ballpark, but we can certainly um, learn more about that population. And then in terms of routine uh, HIV testing, they were recommending this, particularly in healthcare settings. We'll talk a lot more about that in a minute. And then reducing the time to diagnosis. They actually formally reduced the, um, uh, the objective for linkage to care from 90 days to 30 days, which I think was fantastic. That is something more or less concrete that happened um, after these uh, recommendations and soon thereafter. And so some of our questions, at least in terms of the modeling work, will be, will Miami get to zero new infections? Um, if so, when will they get there, optimistically? And what can we do to get them there faster and more efficiently? So at first, we're going to be talking about HIV screening and linkage to care, which is one of these uh, hallmark recommendations, one of the, real, the three tenets of the recommendations put forth by the committee. And like I said, this actually corresponds to a project that we uh, just submitted last Monday to NIAD which is uh, in the form of an R21, which would give us two years to basically look at the screening program that has already been implemented in, um, in Miami-Dade uh, facilities. So this is part of the FOCUS program. I don't know how many of you might be familiar with this. This is both an HIV and HCV screening program in many uh, hospitals and clinical settings, and even some uh, prevention-specific uh, settings, such as uh, you know, testing community-based facilities, stuff like that. Uh, this is based on the FOCUS program. So if you see that name around, this is supported by Gilead, and um, Miami is one of the uh, more recent uh, settings where this has been implemented. And so, uh, interestingly, in 2015, the state of Florida passed a statute which was designed to uh, routinize HIV screening. Um, this tends to um, happen only when you put your money where your mouth is. So if you don't have money for a program, it tends not to happen. So you see in Florida, the facilities that have uh, sponsorship to do this, they're doing it. In sites where they don't, they're not. And so that's perhaps not too surprising for anyone who deals with hospital administration, but um, this is something we'll, we'll talk about specifically in the focus site settings and for this R21 project, which I'll be talking about specifically in Jackson Memorial Hospital, which is the largest um, hospital in, in Miami, and I think the largest in Florida, but don't focus on that. And so... What we're talking about specifically is routine opt-out HIV screening and enhanced linkage to care. So this is based on the FOCUS protocol, which was established in order to uh, really maximize the linkage to care for those who receive diagnosis and also those who just come into the, um, into the system and have a previous diagnosis and aren't currently being treated. And so this has been, like I said, implemented in several different settings. Hopefully, yeah, I have a map here. So this will show you, um, these, this H over here is Jackson Memorial Hospital. It's right downtown. It's right by that sort of overtown district that I mentioned before. And here we have, uh, I'm actually not sure if this is, I think this is Jackson South, and I think this is Homestead Hospital. Um, but if anyone's from Miami and knows differently, just uh, keep it to yourself. Just make it look <laughs> um, Yeah, so these are uh, three of the 
three of the EDs which have implemented this program. We actually have a few other Jackson Health System sites that have also recently implemented, Jackson North, Jackson West. They're really creative with their uh, nomenclature. Um, and we also have here two uh, community-based organizations that I have dealt with um, in the past. Uh, we do some uh, screening primarily, primarily among the MSF Hispanic community, so they're also highlighted on this map. They're not included in, in the current R21, but we have hopes to include them in the future. And this is Latino Salud. Uh, so over on the right here, you may have guessed, these are some of the data that they'll be collecting. I'll sort of Vanna White over here to this side too. Um, we have uh, demographic things like birth year, um, ethnicity. We have, of course, the results for the HIV and HCV uh, tests. We have confirmation on whether or not they've been linked to care. We have uh, things like their chief complaints. In theory, we can, we can grab anything that their, uh, that their EHR is collecting. So that is great. This is sort of the grab bag of promises we have made to the NIH in our proposal. Some of these things are a little bit easier because they're already being transmitted to the central focus program as part of monthly updates. And so we already have some of these data. But uh, the, the point of this project is basically to look deeply at the data to see who are they reaching now, who are they reaching before, so we can understand the importance of this program, and then also how can we enhance it, how can we make it uh, better. So you'll see here uh, results from the uh, first month that they implemented routine uh, HIV screening in the ED. Oh, I should also mention, this is all in the emergency department, if that wasn't clear. Jackson sees about between, just under 100,000 uh, ED patients a year, so like I said, quite large. Um, July was the first month of full implementation. I don't know exactly what happened um, to September to have that dip, but we have obviously some stochasticity here. Um, but this is a large amount of, of testing within the ED. And uh, if we had an imaginary line here, uh, it would show about 70 tests monthly when they were doing symptomatic-based testing. So if you came into the ED and for some reason your clinician was astute on the HIV epidemic there and decided to test you for your risk-based assessment or, or symptoms, which of course as many clinicians know would be quite vague for uh, acute HIV infection, uh, that was happening about 70 times a month or about 800 times a year. And so even if you were to have 800 for the year, you can see that this is a huge, huge increase in testing, uh, more than tenfold. So this is a big paradigm shift, and I believe that any paradigm shift like this should be accompanied with some rigorous um, analysis of the data. So this is a rough schematic of the um, process that they uh, screen people once they come into the ER. Um, first, you see the triage nurse. The triage nurse indicates whether or not you are opting out of the program. I don't have the exact numbers for how many people opt out of the program. That's part of what we'll be looking at um, with the project, hopefully. I'll let you guys know in a couple months after the study section, please, um, how we look about that. Um, but this is also where the triage nurse can indicate if there are other reasons why you should be tested. If you're opting out, uh, like I said, or if you have recently received an HIV um, test, Maybe in the past three months, you might say, oh, well, I don't need to be tested again. And so they have a few different um, buttons that they can toggle to say why someone is not, um, is not being uh, screened that day. And then, of course, this is only effective if you actually receive a blood draw during your ER visit. So if you receive a blood draw, then essentially this order goes through to the phlebotomist, and they, uh, they take an extra vial where they actually perform the screening test. If you do not receive a blood draw, which I think is somewhere in the range of maybe two-thirds of patients uh, within, the, within the ED, 
Again, don't quote me on that. These are rough numbers. But you will not receive an HIV or HCV screening test unless you're otherwise indicated by your clinician, and they, they do it on their own. But within this system, only if you have a blood drop will that automatic screening um, order be, be triggered. And there are other reasons why it's not triggered, and we can go through that if we have time. But this basically takes you through, and then we also have a few little steps here indicating what happens if, um, if it's sent to the lab and you have a positive result. Of course, you want to confirm with the DOH to see if this is an incident case or a known case. Uh, you're also going to have some little fine details in terms of who uh, indicates to the patient that they have a positive test. Um, oftentimes, it can be a, a known positive, but maybe this doesn't um, find its way to their charts before the screening test is actually taken. All sorts of funny little things that we can go into in terms of you know, how the program is actually run on a pragmatic basis. Again, this is the project that we'll be um, looking at. The, the whole point of this project is, is kind of the implementation science angle of this program. As I said, it's already been implemented for a couple of years, so we have some great data to look at, and we're basically going to try to find ways to, um, to take what we're doing, figure out how effective it is, and then how can, we, uh, how can we make it more effective. So that corresponds to our study aims. The first aim is just to look at the effectiveness of the program since we shifted from that symptomatic and risk assessment-based testing to the current routinized care observing the process itself, so sort of those steps, but with much more detail, and then implementing some sort of quality improvement measures. Very similar to the continuous uh, quality improvement that you probably have at DHMC. Uh, they also have within the Jackson Health uh, System, but we're gonna be taking a bit of, a, of an enhanced approach, if you will. Uh, this will give you uh, an idea of some of the past improvement measures that have been implemented within this program. So, for instance, they've, they've realized that there was inadequate knowledge regarding the FOCUS program among the nursing staff. Their education uh, within the staff was, was not doing terribly well at uh, conveying the necessary steps within the, uh, within the linkage and screening process. And so they realized that individual coaching was, was probably of use, um, training, observation during triage. So we have a FOCUS uh, program administrator that can, you know, uh, sort of stand by the triage process and, and give uh, some of the triage nurses an idea of what would be standard protocol, what isn't. As you might not be surprised, sometimes this deviates, particularly among some individuals who may or may not be espousing the program as much as others, or, or maybe there's just um, certain challenges in understanding exactly what the steps are. And so that's something that they've identified previously. Flagging um, uh, certain patients if they've Got a lot of frequent flyers there, as you can imagine. Some of the people who are also at high risk for prevalent HIV may also be at risk for all sorts of other things that are bringing them into the ED. Uh, this may be their unofficial site of primary care. And so in order not to trigger this screening process every time they come in, so you have someone come in five or six times a year, they actually have now a flagging program, which essentially negates any order you have for a screening if that person is a known positive or has been screened recently. And so we can also talk about the sort of benefits of this and maybe some of the challenges, but these are some, some good uh, examples of their quality improvement programs. And then these are a few ideas that we actually came up with for our proposal um, in order to maybe enhance, potentially enhance the, uh, the program itself. So for instance, I mentioned that only patients with a blood draw are screened. So we can actually find out if there are mechanisms we can employ for those with uh, risk assessment you know, flag or if those who maybe present symptomatic for acute HIV infection. 
we can have point of care testing, which may you know sort of seal some of that gap so that we're not missing as many people who are not having blood draws. And one of the things we're going to look at with the data are are there correlations between those who come in for something that doesn't require a blood draw, which also puts them at greater risk for, for HIV infection or for HCV? Now, this is something that we don't have a lot of a priori knowledge on, or at least myself, I don't. And so uh, this will be something that uh, hopefully is interesting You know, when we first take a look at the data and see, okay, are the people at greater risk more likely to be screened, less likely to be screened? We, we don't really know. So you may have noticed from that graph that I think it was about, at peak, maybe between 25 and 30,000 people a year being screened. And that's, you know, obviously only about a third of the 90,000 plus that are coming in. So we're missing a good chunk of people. And that's not just because they're not having blood draws, but many times it is. Also, there, there can be uh, enhancements to the education on antiretroviral-based therapy. Uh, so many of the patients here have prevalent infection. Maybe they've had it for quite a while. Many of them are dealing with other uh, syndemics, and so ART may not be high on their priority list. And so educating them on the benefits of ART to themselves and others uh, may enhance some of our enrollment rates within treatment. And then also there are some other ways that we can uh, sort of uh, address patients that miss the triage stage because they come in on the ambulance, they come in um, through... Uh, uh, through police escort, there are lots of reasons why you just don't go through the normal triage system. Can you just say more the resistance to HIV treatment with linkage? What is that? Is there something about that group or some generalization you can make? Um, I will say that among their list of reasons for uh, a lack of linkage to care and enrollment have been uh, incarceration. Uh, which obviously makes it difficult to have continuous care. You may, in some cases, uh, be provided quite good care when you're incarcerated, and then once you're out, it's you know it's more difficult to continue that care. So incarceration, uh, homelessness is very difficult. I know just getting reliable contact information, even for some of these patients, is quite difficult. And also, um, uh, their top three. Um, so a quite high morta mortality among some of these. So um, uh, things like a, a, a very poor prognosis with uh, another uh, ailment is often accompanied with a uh, resistance to entering treatment. So they may have uh, a, a fatal illness, uh, fatal prognosis as well. And so I think those were the three things that were highlighted. Anyone else? I, I, I realize I'm talking very quickly, so if there's anything I can expand on, I'd be happy to do so. This is um, the newest part of our work in Miami, so again, I'm really happy to talk about it if there's any questions. Um, I also realize this is maybe a bit of a shift uh, from what you might be used to in, in New Hampshire. It's certainly not the same epidemic setting as Miami. It's, it's possibly an interesting contrast. I'm not presenting this as necessarily... Um, uh, uh, encouragement that a place like, say, DEHMC would also employ the same program. It certainly would have very different outcomes because you just don't have the incidence. They have a positivity rate currently at the hospital of 2%. So of everyone they're screening, 2% of people are infected with HIV, or at least, yes, those who are screened. So it'd be a very different situation up here. Uh, but I do think it presents a nice contrast.
Hi, I do have a question about the, you had the rise in incidents in the Hispanic population yeah. in 2012 and it sort of crisscrosses the non-Hispanic. Yeah. And I saw the, the routine uh, HIV screening was in 2015. I just, I just wonder, did you, were you able to rule out why the incidence is going up? It's not because of increased screening, right? And, and the other question would really be, the big question is, what's going on? Why, why is that number going so high? Sure. Um, so I will say that most diagnoses in Miami occur at Department of Health facilities. So the diagnoses or the, um, the incident diagnoses in particular that are occurring at the hospitals that are in this program make up a fairly small number within the entire county. So within the entire county, you have about 2,000 uh, new diagnoses a year. Uh, last year was the first where it was under 2,000 for a while. So that was fantastic. Just barely. It was like 1960 or something like that. But um, so I will say these make up a fairly small amount. And also, you see, the first full month here was in 2017. So if um, some of these effects that were noticed a couple years earlier wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with the focus program or this hospital in particular, uh, I will say that, as I alluded to before, it's there. Right um, there are uh, noted disparities in access to testing and treatment for Hispanics. And so it is certainly possible that you have uh, cases that are presenting later in, in disease progression and receiving their first diagnosis later on among the Hispanics than they otherwise would have earlier. Uh, and then comparing that to the non-Hispanic population. Yes, it's possible. I don't have enough data to say whether or not that's really, really what's driving it. Uh, I will say that there haven't been that I've noticed notable upticks in HIV testing access among Hispanics in that time. So the idea that it would be um, increased testing that would be solely responsible would be a little, um, uh, I don't want to say unlikely, but it wouldn't be my first thought. It's a great point, though. Anyone else? Uh, I guess you're going to get to it, but yeah. how this screening in an individual setting of a relatively small number of individuals is going to get you to zero. I don't yet see the language. Sure. Well, this certainly won't be um, uh, a panacea. And <clears throat> the good part is that uh, this program itself is implemented, like I said, in, in several facilities. So we've got uh, Jackson Memorial, Jackson South, Homestead Hospital. You put all of these together, and I think there are something like maybe four other hospital EDs, which do see quite a large number of patients. I know Jackson South sees about half what Jackson Memorial does, so put those two together. Alone, they have about 100,000 uh, people a year. And so we are talking some pretty large numbers. These won't get us to zero, certainly, but any sort of concomitant um, prevention packages that will be of you know, use within the, uh, the getting to zero recommendations, I'd say this would probably be a, a chief one among them, is, is getting people uh, within that first step of the care continuum. Uh, and do they have um, you know, generally access to, PrEP is very expensive, right? So are, they, are these patients covered by Medicaid, or do they even have insurance? Are they citizens? Yeah. So I'm, some of you may be familiar with this much more than I, um, if, you're, if you have any PrEP patients. Uh, the good part is insurance is 
by and large, have been, have been pretty good about covering PrEP. It's a lot cheaper to put someone on PrEP than to put them on treatment uh, for the rest of their lives and to deal with complications of HIV infection. Uh, there, are all, there are also some, some good drug support programs. Gilead also has a, has a support program for those who can't afford it. And uh, maybe, maybe even best of all, the uh, state of Florida has now agreed to pay, I think it's the first 90 days of PrEP um, regimens for those who newly enroll. And um, I'm not exactly sure where that money comes from. I think there was some maybe sponsorship of that, but the state has committed to it. I believe it is 90 days. Uh, so that's really fantastic. Um, the numbers of PrEP enrollment are still pretty low. Uh, so as I mentioned before, AIDSview has some great data on that on the ZIP3 level. So that basically just means a ZIP code and you take off the last two numbers and it's sort of um, you know, a semi-city uh, level view of PrEP intake. So they have these data for the entire country. So you can look at Miami, you can look at, um, it would probably be all of New Hampshire, I guess would be a ZIP3 level um, but yeah, you can, you can actually look at this data. What ends up being the role of uh, residency status and, and even sort of thinking about sort of the, during this period, the political climate and people's concerns about being documented or not and whether that disproportionately affects some populations more than others and accessing any medical care in that environment? Sure. Well, I don't know what you heard, but the policies in Florida are all settled. It's all really easy. Um, so sometimes we can, we can delve deeper into the politics here as they relate to the prevention services available. It's a very conservative state legislature. It's consistently conservative. So sometimes you'll have some Democratic senators you know, come out of Florida, but it's rare that you see the legislature actually not be fairly conservative. So it is tough sometimes to get programs which would give um, good coverage to people who, who need it and particularly who are at high risk of HIV. Um, I will say that there are some great support systems, uh, at least locally, for people who cannot afford their care, who cannot afford to get tested. Um, in terms of uncompensated care within Jackson Memorial Hospital, it's, it's quite routine, and they obviously get compensated from the state to defer some of those costs. Um, I guess they also just worry whether people are not getting, are deferring care because of Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, there is certainly a police presence within within the uh, the hospital. I mean, you have you have to go through a um, a security you know metal detector as you go in. That's actually a fairly recent thing. Um, uh, I think that there was a, there was a patient who actually was. I think unconscious and perhaps going into the OR and they noticed the gun on this patient only like 20 minutes into the process or something as they were uh, having their clothes removed. So this was sort of a wake-up call within the ED that they uh, then put in a metal detector just, um, just recently within the last year or two, I think. Um, so this is not um, the most comfortable setting for many people. It might not be um, a welcome setting for those who have undocumented status. And so that, I'm sure, plays a role, uh, and certainly in, for those who are seeking treatment through the South Florida AIDS Network, which is part of Jackson Health, and um, everything is harder when you're undocumented, uh, so this is too, I'm sure. I can't necessarily speak to the particular experience for an undocumented person, but um, hopefully that's something we can actually look into with some of these data to see if, if the linkage data are, in fact, um, worse for any particular reason we can identify. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and anytime you talk about Miami, 
uh, in the HIV epidemic, you have to talk about the immigrant population, the undocumented population, and also the um, uh, the sort of transient uh, mi migratory population. So you have people who come in, say, for half the year, maybe they have part-time residence in, in Brazil, in Haiti, in um, uh, any, any number of countries within Latin America, it's, it's quite common. And so uh, you're always dealing with this, with this population in flux, which, as, as you would think, makes modeling really, really interesting uh, and difficult. So I'm glad that we, we took uh, a good amount of time to, uh, to talk about that. That's sort of a new project, which I haven't presented here at all. Now we can uh, shift gears a bit to talk about the model, which is um, an agent-based modeling approach that I've taken um, primarily under a K award in order to investigate our ability to get to zero within Miami. And this basically would be a grab bag of, okay, let's see all the things that Miami is doing and all of the data that we have about Miami. How can we simulate whether or not Miami will actually reach um, its targets within the next few years? So I think I'll go through this Kind of quickly, we have some methods in here that really we can just brush through. I don't think we need to spend too much time on that. Um, we can talk about some of the improvements we've made to this sort of existing model structure and also our, our motivation in general. So like many getting to zero programs, uh, they're very, very difficult to model. So uh, or rather the, um, the program in Miami is very, very difficult to model. You're talking about recommendations on everything from PrEP utilization to testing and treatment to linkage of care to um, enhanced linkage uh, to partner notification, uh, testing at SDI clinics, a whole host of different recommendations that could influence our ability to get there. And almost all of these things have the ability to, put, to be put into the model approach that we are taking. And I always sort of make this pitch early on to say, okay, well, why would you do individual-based modeling? Uh, what is the uh, what is the sort of benefit to doing a, a fairly complicated approach rather than a more simplistic approach uh, that most people are more used to, compartmental or population-based models? I will say that the benefits are quite clear. So you can look at the um, the synergistic and, and antagonistic effects of different approaches. Some things work well together, some things don't. You can look at assertivity in sexual networks, and you can also look at the heterogeneity in the distribution of services. So uh, as we mentioned before, Hispanics tend to um, access testing and treatment at a slower rate than non-Hispanics. The black population in particular is at very high risk of HIV infection and also at very high risk of uh, showing up later um, in care. So we have this sort of confluence of a lot of different heterogeneities, which I think really um, brings to bear the benefits of an individual-based model, a sort of complex one. So usually we use the term agent-based model, which really just means individual-based. They're synonymous. Um, a lot of other fields use agent-based modeling, so it's sort of a common term. You can talk to an ecologist or even a cosmologist, and they may use also agent-based models. It basically just means we're talking about individual um, people, particles, whatever, a unit. We're talking about individuals. And so as I um, mentioned a moment ago, uh, this is in stark contrast to the models you may be more used to seeing, sort of your traditional um, sick, exposed, infected, recovered model. These are, if you're looking at the literature, these are quite common. Uh, basically, you just have different compartments which represent different populations. The, uh, this, oh, I'm sorry, the susceptible population, exposed population, the infected population, recovered population. 
with HIV. You don't recover from HIV unless you're one of two people who have been cured so far. So uh, you can pretty much just knock that one right out. Um, and this is a contrast to what we're doing. This is looking at populations as a whole. An entire population would be in each of these buckets. As a contrast, we're looking at individuals. We're approximating individuals in a large population. So here I have a little cartoon which I like to show, which just sort of gives you an idea of what happens within the model. So each of these numbers represents a month of time elapsing within the model. So we have here on the left, Agent Alpha is born. We stochastically assign parameters, uh, uh, demographics, and so forth based on the Miami population itself. So if the Miami population is about 51% female, then the model will be 51% female. If it is about 87% uh, Hispanic, which I think is, uh, that might be, I need reporting Hispanic. I, I'm not sure on that exact number, but um, it would coincide with the, uh, with the census and FDOH uh, estimates that we have. And so here we have uh, Agent Alpha is basically uh, taken through uh, cycles of the model. And here we have at an age of 17, they experience a sexual debut. So this Agent Alpha is now open to uh, the sexual network and can find a partner. They find a partner based on our best available estimates for finding a partner. And so as you can imagine, this is very difficult to come up with. Um, Miami-specific data can be sparse. They can be available through some samples. Like I mentioned before, the, uh, the NHPS, the Natural HIV Behavioral Surveillance System, uh, has some data on this. So what is your probability of being connected to a certain number of people? How many people have you had sex with in the past 12 months? Things like this help us parameterize the model, but it's also very rough, and so there's a great deal of uncertainty. We can talk about what we do with that uncertainty later, but basically, in this example... We have Agent Alpha form partnerships with two different uh, other agents, Beta and Gamma, and all of them are at present HIV uninfected, as noted by the colors on the bottom. So here we have a new, uh, a new agent uh, within this small egocentric network. Uh, egocentric just basically means we're looking at Alpha's partners. We have little Delta over here, which has diagnosed HIV infection, but is not on ART. So there's a pretty appreciable probability uh, good thing I don't say that too many times fast. There's an appreciable possibility of transmitting to uh, their partner over here because they're not being treated. So the probability may be on the order of you know one out of a hundred or so on any given sexual act, but uh, we see here that it has in fact occurred at this month 271. So now Agent Alpha is infected. They have undiagnosed HIV infection. When they're acutely infected, they have a great uh, a great chance of um, of transmitting to others, and then when they leave acute infection, that then abates a bit, but we see here that Agent Alpha has transmitted to Beta over here, and this is just one example of an egocentric network, in which case we can actually track HIV transmission through the model, and we can also note all of the other aspects of that, of that agent's care. So we can tell if they're in treatment, if they're diagnosed, uh, if they're uninfected, we can tell if they're on PrEP or if they're eligible for PrEP based on their sexual activity. We can tell whether or not they have access to other prevention services. Basically, we, um, we almost, uh, uh, to sound trite, we almost play God in this simulation where we have perfect information without, within what goes on in the population. Okay? And we do this, like I said, at an individual level. So each agent within the model is a specific unit of analysis. We can tell everything that happens to that person. 
Does that all make sense? That's kind of the real the nuts and bolts of the modeling. And if if you take away nothing else, I think that's kind of the crux of it. Does that make sense? Okay. So the whole idea of this is it basically allows us to do two different important things from, from my point of view. It allows us to estimate historical dynamics of the epidemic. So assuming we get things right enough and robust enough, we can actually tell what's happening when. We can see who's infecting whom. We can see uh, who's at greater risk. We can see what, um, what interventions are working, what aren't. And we can also determine the effectiveness of future interventions. We can see what's going on in Miami-Dade. We can take a look at the recommendations, see what's already happening on the ground. And then we can say, okay, let's play this forward 10 years or 20 years. And we can see what changes are made. And the hope of this is to do it in the most practical way. So not just saying, okay, well, let's give everyone prep. Let's treat everyone the same day. Of course those will work. We know they will work. Rather, we want to look at the specific um, disparities within populations to see, okay, will the Hispanic and black, and black populations uh, benefit at a, um, at a reduced uh, um, pace than the non-Hispanic and non-black populations as we've seen in other settings? You know, will we be able to get the right people on PrEP, and what will the impact be if we do get the right people on PrEP, and how do we identify them? As you can imagine, it can be quite difficult to find someone who's eligible for PrEP um, and keep them enrolled. So, yeah, if you think it's difficult to, uh, to keep someone who has HIV infection, on, infection on, their, on their drugs, imagine someone who's uninfected to take the same drug every day, which does have, you know, some... Some, uh, some side effects which can actually you know, hinder your day-to-day life or toxicity or, or kidney, um, uh, kidney issues. So uh, as you can imagine, the, these things are, are difficult to, um, to estimate, but we do our best through this, through this approach. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this. Um, I've already taken up quite a bit of time on this stuff so far. Um, basically, what, what you need to know is that the model tries to incorporate all of the things we know about who people have sex with, um, how long they have their sexual partners for, um, how these partnerships are different based on demographics, based on sexual orientation, based on um, based on age. We, we do things like assort uh, partners based on your age, based on the, the noted disparities we have between men and women. Uh, men, to ha- men tend to have younger partners, and so we sort of accommodate for that in the model. Um, we talk about concurrency and how it's quite common. You saw it in that graphic before. Concurrency, basically having multiple partners at the same time. Um, we, we account for that within the model. And then we have all sorts of accommodations for HIV transmission. The viral load is going to be the primary um, constituent uh, factor within whether or not a transmission occurs. And other things also have, uh, have an influence. And then viral load, uh, I'm not going to spend much time talking about this as I usually do. This uh, denotes sort of the uncertainty that we have within um, the transmission of HIV based on viral load. So all of these point estimates are based on meta-analyses, and you could put a, a pretty large range onto what their true values are. And this is, of course, obscuring all the other things that, that impact whether or not transmission occurs. Having an ulcerative uh, SCI will be a huge cofactor in whether or not transmission occurs. Um, whether or not you have a, a particularly fit um, virus, uh, viral genome within, within a host that can determine whether or not transmission occurs, whether or not you have a, um, a wild type virus. There are all sorts of things that play a factor. Um, so I like to sort of show this as sort of a, a double-edged sword. We have nice and crisp estimates based on viral load for 
you know, you probably have tread fitting, but these are also quite rough, if you ask me, because um, they obscure lots of things. And also, the, the good news is that we have some studies recently releasing results to, to show that for those who remain undetectable, uh, we have thousands of person years of, um, of sexual risk activity history from these recent studies, which actually have shown um, to have no new transmission events among the undetected um, uh, populations. So this is fantastic news. So one day we may actually revise this to, uh, you know, to be zeros across the board, um, which may be a bit optimistic, but these are, of course, very recent data in the last few months that have been presented from big studies which show undetectable may be, in fact, really, really close to untransmittable, which is fantastic. So we're not going to talk much about the calibration today because that's really just nuts and bolts of, of how the model works. I'm happy to talk about it um, after if, if anyone is curious. But basically how we deal with uncertainty is, uh, is really the, the chief problem within the modeling exercises we do. And we try to accommodate that as best we can. Um, so I'll, I'll take a minute just to talk about some of the additions we're, we're doing to the model, which help us look at the, um, uh, the get to zero task forces recommendations. So uh, within the current model that has been employed in other settings, uh, it, it has never introduced PrEP targeted HIV testing. We've only done it within heterosexual populations. So now obviously we need to address the MSM and uh, MSMW, men who have sex with men and women populations. Uh, in fact, there's, the data suggests that there are quite a few uh, MSM within Miami who also have sex with women. And so we need to accommodate all of this disparate sexual activity within the model for really the first time. And so this is just a, a sort of preliminary look at what the central node of a, uh, an HIV epidemic might look like in Miami. So this is loosely based on the demographics, the best preliminary data we have on Miami, uh, which show um, the MSM, MSM, and MSMW populations, the, uh, the edges in between these nodes uh, indicate the orientation of the relationship, or rather of, of, both, of, the, um, of both of the agents. We have here the signs of the node indicates the uh, the, uh, the viral load of the uh, of the patient. Oh no, I'm sorry, it's the um, the edge count, so the number of partners they have. So you see here, this person over here has lots of partners, so they have a larger node. Um, the gradient of the um, of the red scale indicates their viral load. So if they're red, they're HIV infected. If they're a deep red and maroon, then they have a high viral load, so they have a high probability of transmitting at any given time. Here we have. Uh, nodes uh, denoting their PrEP status. So this is one of the first preliminary analyses we did, which basically we took a population, we did not give it PrEP, and then we saw what the incidence was. And then, lo and behold, if you look at the same population as a counterfactual, you give people PrEP, so this is that dark blue, you end up having less HIV infection. This is not innovative, this is not news, we know this would happen, but the whole idea is, is to know the scale of it. So if we give PrEP to the... Um, to specific populations of specific amounts within noted sort of disparities that we have observed within the Miami population that says, okay, 9 out of 10 MSM in Miami, this is a fake number I'm throwing out, but it's probably not too far off, 9 out of 10 MSM in Miami who take PrEP would be white MSM. So the white population, the white MSM population dominates the PrEP market in the entire country. Miami is no different. I don't know what the exact number is, but that, that one I threw out is probably not too far off. Um, at least in terms of the disparity. And so we need to look at the exact sort of um, 
structure of these services to, to understand the impact that's going to have on the epidemic. So just knowing that it will be fewer infections is, is not really enough. That doesn't tell us what we need to know. And also, uh, I've alluded to the racial and ethnic assortivity we have in the model, which really is the nuts and bolts of why I think it adds utility to the existing literature, because, because we're taking all of the diverse communities within Miami, we're taking all the things we know about them the best we can, and we're trying to estimate exactly where in these different subpopulations we see the best uh, getting to zero progress. And so <clears throat> this is an, another image of the model. I know this is kind of taken from a higher view. Um, please pardon that. But basically, we have the color of the nodes here now representing ethnicity based on the uh, Florida Department of Health data. And so you can see we have a large population of white Hispanic um, nodes over here, which uh, tend to cluster over here in that network. And then we also have their edges here, which denote their orientation as well. Um, so you can see that there's a lot of assortivity within this population. We have some new data. Uh, maybe I'll stick to it. Uh, yeah, we have some new data actually based on some colleagues' work, which took um, a cell phone app data on, uh, that had demographics, and we were able to estimate the assortivity within specific um, uh, subpopulations. So uh, black MSM, white MSM, Hispanic MSM, um, white heterosexual females, black heterosexual females, and so forth. So we have data from each of these subpopulations from, I think it was maybe nine different cities in the U.S., estimating exactly um, who they form partnerships with. These data are great. Unfortunately, Miami wasn't in this study. Maybe in the future we can use some Miami data. Um, but we extrapolated the best we could, and we did a, a rough sort of mock-up of what the, um, what the prevalence of each type of relationship would be. So if you look at this, this scale, the dark red is the most prominent type of relationship. So here among, say, MSM, we find that um, Hispanic to Hispanic relationships, not surprisingly, because they make up the bulk of the population, represent a greater number of relationships than, um, than elsewhere. And each of these are actually um, relative to one another. So all of these scales are relative to one another. And then these are also um, separately relative to one another. Um, so you can't say that this is equal to this. Um, we put this scale in so we can see resolution, but uh, I can talk more about why that's important later. But basically, what you would want to take away from this is uh, you can't look at the population as a monolith. You have to understand where that assortivity occurs, what are the most prominent types of relationships, uh, in order to understand who to give the services to. So wrapping up, I hope by the end of these two projects, we'll have a little bit better idea of whether or not we can get to zero infections. You may be a skeptic like me and say, okay, we won't cut there with what we have going. Yeah, that's probably true. But we can see how close we can get, and we can also uh, sort of do, um, do projections based on upcoming uh, innovations as well. So we, we have a partnership now with a colleague at, um, at Beth Israel who has developed an algorithm which looks at EHR data to identify people at high risk of incident HIV acquisition. Um, and we can use that to help identify people on PrEP. This would be an innovative way for us to identify people on PrEP within our model, and perhaps that will help us you know, achieve some better results. And then, of course, you know, how can we get them there the fastest? So the limitations of the modeling are pretty, um, 
maybe intuitive. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty within the parameters themselves. We try to take care of this with the calibration procedure, which of course I skipped today, but I'm happy to talk about that in a forum where we have a little bit more time. Um, so some interventions are very difficult to model. Uh, I'd like to mention that the sex education one would be a really difficult for one for us to model, because you can imagine the sort of what's the effects of teaching someone about um, safe sex when they're 15 on their acquisition 10 years later. That's a really tough problem. But the, um, the, the conservative legislature has made some of our lives easier by striking down the sex ed bill um, every time it gets uh, brought up in committee. So um, that has been easy for us, you know, new sex ed. Um, and improved healthcare access through reform. Some things are more difficult, you know. Uh, we talked about um, access for undocumented um, persons, uh, access uh, for poor persons, um, indigenous populations. I mean, some, some of these things are just very difficult for us to model. We do the best we can, but sometimes we, we have to punt nonetheless. And then also, uh, just in terms of awaiting the validity of our results, we're, you know, we're at the behest of the best data we have from the FDOH, which I will say is you know, largely pretty comprehensive, but uh, you know, has, its, has its limitations. And then in terms of the screening, um, so some changes within the testing environment may obscure the sort of uh, the, the, the true causes for the, uh, the data that we see, the, out, um, the output that we see. This is possible. We're looking over a relatively short period. I don't think there are these amazing or, or horrible things going on in the background that are really going to um, uh, obscure our, our data. But I mean, we can't predict the, we can't predict the future, uh, so I'm not sure. I will say some of this is looking at past data and some of this is looking at future data after we've sort of improved this process. So, you know, things can happen that we can't predict. And linkage to care um, can be assessed through the study data, you know, whether or not they actually have a confirmed visit with an HIV care provider, but this doesn't tell us anything about their viral load. It doesn't tell us anything about their partners, about um, their enrollment status, you know, years down the line. So some of these downstream uh, effects of being linked to care may not be readily um, interpretable by our data. So that's just an inherent limitation. Uh, so anyway, I want to acknowledge um, some of my collaborators at Harvard, at FIU, at the Department of Health, at uh, UMiami, uh, MSGen, and of course the funding. Uh, so two things I don't have up on there because they're proposals right now are the R21 for the screening, and then also in R in R01 we put in the same day, which I never recommend putting in two grants the same day. Um, which is unrelated work looking at getting to zero um, throughout other settings in the country. So anyway, thanks uh, for taking the time and happy to answer your questions. Too. We have the room until 2 o'clock, so definitely have time for questions. I just wanted to ask, how do you, you give us some insight in your field of modeling? How, how does your model, so you build this model, you try to get the historical items, all the right factors right, yeah. and presumably if the model works really well, you can make accurate implementation predictions. You can say to the Department of Health, you should spend money on prep for this subpopulation of people because That'll give you the biggest bang for your buck toward. But how do people, how do you how do you test that? You can't actually test it, or, or maybe you can. Maybe you can look at some at some data over time and see if your model was accurate. So there must be some other way that your your evaluators evaluate you. How do they say, yes, good model, use it or don't use yeah, it? Yeah. You know? 
Um, well, each, each person looking at this has their own pet peeves, so some people will be very particular about the inputs and say, okay, these inputs, you can't extrapolate them because X, Y, or Z, or you can't make these predictions because your efficacy numbers are based on ungeneralizable, whatever. People always have their pet peeves, and we're never going to escape that, and, and that's fine, and, and people should have their own particular areas of expertise. Um, so I will say that the... The most immediate things we can do is just say, okay, how well do they fit the data like you say? How well does it actually predict past data that we can actually um, use to validate the model? Sure, that's something that everybody does in this community and that we can do. As for the validity of our projections, I mean, it's a bit of a catch-22. If we had the data to validate it, we wouldn't need to be predicting them. So there's the catch-22 there. But um, I will say the questions we're answering... Uh, they may not be the most robust answers, but they are the questions that are unamendable to other schemes. So if I could run an RCT and find out, okay, what is the effect of giving um, uh, Hispanics and, and Blacks in, um, in Miami-Dade County greater access to PrEP, what would be the, uh, the efficacy of that? Sure, if I had $100 million and I could give PrEP to you know, 10,000 people, I could do that. But the fact is I don't have those resources, and I'm really only asking questions that are unamendable to other approaches. And so, yes, the answers are typically going to be less robust than you would if I ran an RCT and saw the true effect and had placebo effects and had all sorts of other nuances. But I'm also asking questions that other people can't. And so my answers might be, okay, I predict a 30 to 40% reduction within these populations if we use it the way we say we will. And, you know, that's going to be pretty rough. I can't say whether or not that's true. Maybe five years later, if I'm happy, you know, I can look back and it's great. If I'm close, then awesome. But um, I will say that the bar is, is typically lower because I'm asking questions that I can't answer with any other data or any other approaches. And so I realize that may be a lukewarm answer. Um, I don't have any panaceas for validating, but... But are people... Is the test that people will come to you after Ken Friedberg signs off on your model and say, yes, we at the Department of Public Health in Miami are going to are going to use this to target prep? And like, is, is that how? Is that the sort of test in the implementation side of whether your model is getting out there in the world? Like, how, how did? How yeah, did I, I don't know that there's any um, specific test that the FDOH, for instance, is looking for. I will say that this is all part of a K that I've had for a couple of years now, and I tried to make sure that the first thing I did was get the right people in the room. And so I've got uh, people like like Kira, who runs the. Um, uh, the STI and HIV surveillance program for the FDOH uh, in Miami, making sure that we're, A, we're asking the right questions, that we have access to the best data that they have, because I'm not always going to know if they do. And if we check enough boxes, if we make sure we're at least talking to the right people, then we have a shot at the right policymakers saying, okay, yeah, you know, I've, I've heard of this model. I sort of got a, a rough idea of, of how it works and how it's validated. Okay, maybe that's not my thing. I don't know exactly how it works, but I, I'm confident enough that uh, the right people in the room feeding the data, feeding the priorities to say that, okay, we're getting um, one more piece of information that we didn't have before. And so my only hope is to, you know, when they, when they start their priorities for the next year, they say, okay, let's look at what, um, what these people are saying and uh, these people being us, I guess, and maybe we can help move priorities up or down the road. That'd be the hope. So, um, 
I guess wondering how, in some sense, generalizable uh, this model can be once you've once you've sort of done it, and thought uh, about differently. How modifiable is it uh, by other investigators for uh, in other areas? Can someone take this and plug it down in the state of New Hampshire, uh, change the pertinent parameters and? Yeah, does it make it easier for the rest of us, or is it starting to know about every time? Um, again, a, a lukewarm response. Um, so I will say that the results that we get from this in, say, you know, a couple years when we've got some more time, we've got all the best data we can, I would hope that we have done a robust enough job looking at the particulars of the HIV epidemic that they're not very generalizable. I want them to work very well for Miami because Miami is a very different place from other places in the country. So in the one sense, I don't want them to be generalizable for that. In terms of the model being modifiable, it's certainly flexible because I'm taking a model whose software was written. I talked to it like it's a person. You spend enough time with it. Um, the software for the model was originally written for um, analyses in South Africa. Then it was modified for analyses in Botswana. And then now it's being um, modified for the U.S. and for Miami. So yes, it's it's very flexible in that sense. That's what we're doing with it. Um, but is it, is it easy? No, it, it's always a, a sort of a big process. Um, so it's typically sort of like our level effort in order to 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 change it up enough to apply to a completely new setting. Um, it's always this sort of um, uh, pie in the sky for modelers to have a um, and, and some achieve it. I don't mean it's just pie in the sky, but for me, it certainly is to have like a plug-and-play version of this model. It's 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 pretty far from where we are because so much of it is just um, uh, a lot of bells and whistles, a lot of, of intricacies. So we're kind of far from that, um, but that is always that has always been an ultimate plan. So my mentor and I, George Seeds, have always talked about putting in a proposal to make this a more plug-and-play version where you can have people from New Hampshire, from Chicago, from wherever, and say, okay, you know, let's take the 20 most salient things that we know about the epidemic and have a plug-and-play version and, and maybe get some, some insight. Uh, but I will say it, it will take some effort to get there. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.